All right. Uh, well, good morning. I hope you, uh, I hope you enjoyed that little video. Uh, we played a similar one when it was uh, Christmas, according to kids, and I found that, and I just thought we cannot, uh, we can't not play that. It's too good. Um, so welcome to Church on the Couch. This is week three, I think, of Church on the Couch. Uh, Hopefully everything is working. If you have any tech issues when you are watching or listening, just make sure you uh, throw that in the comments. Ryan is watching all the comments and uh, maintaining that live chat feature, so he will try to help you out in any way he can. And uh, feel free to interact with everyone else in the chat, say hello to friends, etc. And uh, with that, I guess uh, just welcome to Palm Sunday. Um, Welcome to Easter on the couch, uh, I guess, this year. This is a new thing for a lot of churches, I think a lot of churches will be very creative, will be forced to think outside the box of what it means to be church and do church. And uh, that's us. We get to think outside the box. So welcome. I just want to kick a couple quick um, notes about uh, things coming up this week to keep you connected. Uh, This week, just a quick note about Good Friday. We are live streaming a Good Friday service at 10 a.m. So we will have a Good Friday 10 a.m. as well as our Easter Sunday at 10 a.m. as well. So uh, Good Friday 10 a.m. service. Quick note about that. We are going to do communion. And it's going to be different because I'm here and you're there, but we're going to do communion this Good Friday. So uh, I'm letting you know now so that you can be prepared by having some bread and some juice handy on Good Friday at 10 a.m. So if you have some bread and some juice at home with you while you watch along, uh, I'll lead us virtually through communion together and we'll do communion uh, as a family in different houses, in different parts of the city, even in different cities. And so just a quick forewarning that you might want some bread and juice handy on Good Friday so that you're all set to go. Uh, the other thing is that um, all week we, uh, I, I sent out a, an email and, uh, to, to, to one of the, the deacons, and I believe they're forwarding that on to everyone uh, through the prayer chain. So if you, if you didn't get an email this week from the prayer chain, or you don't get one, you might want to send me an email, and I can connect you up with that prayer chain. Uh, what the email was, was a, a reading guide for Holy Week. So it was a Holy Week reading guide. It had uh, verses and meditations for every day, starting today all the way up until next Sunday. So it was just a uh, a reading guide with some short verses, uh, quick questions to ponder, some reflections, some meditation type stuff. And uh, that was being sent out. If you don't have it, you can also get it on our Avenue Road uh, uh, website uh, under resources. So if you go to arbchurch.com, you click on resources in the uh, upper right-hand corner, it should be one of the first things at the top of the page. It should just say Holy Week Reading Guide, and you can feel free to download that and use that this week. And I will actually be publishing uh, a number of videos this week uh, where I'll be leading us through some of those devotions, some of those meditations. So if, you, uh, stay, if you're subscribed to the YouTube, you'll get the notification. If you're not, uh, we're going to publish those every day at 10 a.m. starting tomorrow. Uh, just a quick little video of me taking us through those Holy Week readings. So with that, I wonder if we could just start with some prayer. Father, we thank you for, uh, for what you did, Lord, what you did thousands of years ago on our behalf. Lord, today, thousands of years ago, you rode into town on a donkey, Father, and you were praised, and you were worshipped, and you were adored, and then a few days later, they put you on a cross. And Lord, you were on the cross for us, on behalf of me. Lord, you bore my punishment, you bore, you bore my judgment, Father, and Jesus, we thank you for that. Jesus, we thank you that you willingly went to the cross to die for us. And so today, in a Palm Sunday that is unlike any other, where we are at home, uh, may, not, may that not take away from the holiness uh, of today. May that not take away from the importance of today. 
And Lord, we just continue to pray about this virus. Lord, we pray for those who are sick. Lord, we ask that you would put your hand of healing on them. Lord, that you would, you would restore them. Father, we pray for the doctors and the nurses, all the other frontline workers who are every day putting themselves at risk, Lord, so that they can take care of us. Lord, would you be with them? Would you keep their families safe? Would you continue to give them courage in what I can only assume is a terrifying thing to be having to face every day at work? Lord, would you strengthen them and give them wisdom and guidance? Lord, would you help us as the church to remember that even though we're not in a building together, we are still the church. Nothing has changed about who we are to be, Father. We simply don't meet in the same building on Sunday mornings, but everything else about church has stayed the same. We are still your hands and we are your feet. We are still sent as ambassadors. We're still here to bear the witness, to bear the message of love to people all over the world. So in a time where people are scared, people have anxiety, people have no hope, Father, may we inspire them with hope from you. May we, may we show them love from you. May we give them courage from you. We, we thank you for all of this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. I, uh, so this week I read a funny story as I was preparing for, uh, for a Palm Sunday. I was preparing what to write. I read a funny, funny story about a little boy and his church. And so this little, this little boy, he, uh, he was sick. He, he loved going to church. He was sick uh, on Saturday night. And so Sunday morning, his, his mom said, you know what, you're still sick. We're going to stay home from church. Um, you and I will stay home, and you know, your dad will go to church. So his dad went to church, and mom and, and this little boy stayed home. And his dad comes home later that afternoon. And he comes home from church, and he has a palm branch. And he gives his son a palm branch. The little boy was obviously curious, what is going on? He said, why, do, why does he have a palm branch? So he asked his dad, what's this all about? Why do you have a palm branch? And the dad said, well, son, uh, you see, when Jesus came into town, everyone was waving palm branches for him as part of praising him and honoring him. And the little boy replied black. He said, ah, oh, seriously, the one Sunday I miss is the one Sunday Jesus shows up? I know, cringy, it's a dad joke. Uh, but today is Palm Sunday, and so I couldn't, uh, couldn't resist a good dad joke. But today is Palm Sunday, and what what does that mean? Palm Sunday. What is Palm Sunday? Today, many thousands of years ago, the people of Jerusalem basically had a parade for Jesus. It would be similar to what we would call a parade. But the big difference is that there wasn't a bunch of floats and a bunch of fancy famous people riding around on those floats, but there was only one person in the parade. And he wasn't riding on a big fancy float. He was riding on a donkey. As he rides into town, people wave palm branches. They had palm branches, and they would wave them as a sign of uh, showing him honor and praise and glory. Some threw their palm cloaks down so that the donkey could walk over them. And that's where we get this name Palm Sunday from. That's what Palm Sunday means. Palm Sunday is a day of celebration and a day of praise. A day where Jesus was worshipped and he was adored and he was glorified. But Palm Sunday is not all smiles, unfortunately. Because we as Christians know that in five days, Friday will be here. In five short days, Friday will be here. Friday will have been here, and the feelings by Friday will have changed. Jerusalem's feelings will have changed. By Friday, Jesus is no longer being worshipped, but is instead being whipped. By Friday, Jesus isn't being praised. He is instead placed on a cross. By Friday, he isn't being adorned. Instead, he is being abandoned. Within a few short days, the people traded their shouts of Hosanna for shouts of crucify him, crucify him. Today, I want to look at two interactions with Jesus, uh, and I want to look at the different results that we can have from those interactions. 
If you have your Bible handy, turn with me to, uh, to Luke chapter 19, verse 36, and at the same time, Matthew 27, verse 15. We're going to use both of those together. We're going we're gonna to look at both of them at the same time. Uh, so Luke 19, 36, and Matthew 27, 15. Billy Graham once said, uh, actually more than once, he said it multiple times, Billy Graham said that the greatest mission field in the United States is the local church. The greatest mission field in the United States is the local church. It's not the struggling high school youth or junior high youth. It's not the homeless. It's not the drug addicts. It's not the people of other faiths. It's not those things. The greatest mission field, Billy Graham, the, perhaps the greatest evangelist of our time, he said the greatest mission field is the local church. He said the people sitting in our church pews already are the greatest mission field. He said, those are the people that we need to reach. Now, you might disagree with Mr. Billy Graham, and you might disagree with me, and it's okay to disagree with me, because frankly, I don't know a whole lot, but I happen to agree with Billy Graham. I happen to agree with what he says. See, lots of people in the church pews, lots of people who sit in church pews on Sunday mornings, they know the Bible verses. They know the Bible stories. They, they can do the felt board stories in Sunday school. They also know how to act on a Sunday morning. They have a really nice suit that they wear to church, a really nice tie that goes along with it, or they have a really nice Sunday dress that they wear when they go on Sundays. They know what to say. They know exactly the words to use. They know the soft, delicate things that they should say. They know the right phrases that a good Christian will say. They know the way to smile and act like the, oh, the world is all sunshine and roses all the time. Uh, they might even give their tithes and their offerings. They might even volunteer on church boards or committees. But when you throw all of that stuff aside, when you throw all of that out, and you look at their real heart, a lot of people who sit in church pews on Sunday morning are missing a real deep relationship with Jesus. There's a lot of flash, but there's no faith. There's a lot of words, but there's no real worship. There's lots of lip service, but no sacrificial love. Many people who fill church pews lack a real relationship with the man who rode into town on a donkey. We see a perfect example of this in our passage today, uh, both of our passages today, actually. In both of our passages today, we see the same story. Jesus rides into town, and the people shout praises, they shout hosanna, they throw their cloaks on the ground, they, uh, they wave their palm branches, and they glorify and praise him. They're excited about this man coming in town. They praise him for all the miracles, all the healings, all the things he had done. They love Jesus, they adore Jesus right now. But by Friday, those same people have now changed their tune, and they say, give us Barabbas the criminal. Crucify this Jesus. So what happened? What had happened to make all these people go from worshiping to this, this wickedness? Why this sudden change of heart, it seems? Why this sudden change of attitudes fully? Now, I wasn't there. I'm old. Uh, as my wife says, I'm real old, but I'm not that real old. So I wasn't there, so I can't tell you for sure what happens. But what I can tell you is that this rapid type of change of heart isn't actually a change of heart. When we something, see something this rapid and we see this quick of a change of heart, it's usually not actually a change of heart. It's usually because their heart wasn't actually in it in the first place. Or their heart was never there in the first place. A great example of this for, for us today is uh, sports. If you're a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, first, I feel sorry for you, but if you're a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, you probably love uh, Jonathan Tavares. Tavares is, is an amazing hockey player. 
Just a wonderful hockey player. Plus, he's Canadian, and he's from our region, so just a great hockey player. He's loved by a lot of people in Toronto right now. A lot of Toronto Maple Leafs fans love Tavares. But he was also loved when he was in New York. He was really loved when he played for the Islanders. They loved him in there. He was almost on, you know, uh, God status. We'll say God status in New York. He was just, he was, he was the guy. He was their Tom Brady. He was the guy. He was their poster boy. They loved him in New York. And then, when Jonathan Tavares was traded from the New York Islanders to the Toronto Maple Leafs, people literally took his jerseys and they burned them on the road. They taped his jerseys to the parking lot of the arena and they drove over them. They took his jerseys and they threw them in shreds. They threw them in dumpsters and lit them on fire. They sent death threats to him. They booed him the next time he came to town. The next time Tavares was in town playing in New York, they booed him every time he was on the ice. This was their beloved guy for years. And then a few months later, they hate him. They hate him and they want nothing more than to see him get hurt playing hockey. This is the same type of thing that happened to Jesus. They loved him one minute, and they hated him the next. But I think it's because their words didn't match their actually or what was actually in their hearts in the first place. See, they possessed a surface-level faith, if we can say it. Uh, they didn't have a real faith or, or a committed faith or a deep faith, or I'll use the word sacrificial faith. They didn't have a faith that went deeper than surface-level. You could say they had religion, they got religion, but they didn't have a relationship. And so how do we avoid that? How do we avoid uh, this temptation to have a, a surface-level faith? How do we have a real and sincere faith? How do we make sure our faith is committed? How do we have a sacrificial faith? I'm going to look at three things that uh, we can do uh, that we take out of this verses, but the th- three things that we can do uh, that will help us to have a committed faith or, or a, a sacrificial faith. So the first thing is that a faith, uh, a real faith, a deep faith, is, is not self-centered. It's Christ-centered. So a real faith is not self-centered. It's Christ-centered. And that might sound really obvious. You might be like, oh, that's obvious, Luke. Let's skip to point two because I already get point one. But I think, honestly, a lot of us look over point one. I think a lot of us don't really realize that we have a self-centered faith, not a Christ-centered faith. See, a good example is we show up to God, we show up to, to, to God and with our calendars in hand. We bring our calendars to God and we say, well, God, you know what? I've had a really busy week this week, or I've got a really busy week this week. I have three golf games. I've got a weekend up at my trailer. Uh, I've got a couple dinners out with friends and I've got some other plans this week. So I can squeeze you in for a few hours on Tuesday. If you're, if you're good with Tuesday, God, I can, I can slot you in for a couple hours. We show up with our calendars already pre-filled. And we say, God, you can have, I've got a a little bit left over. You can have that. You can have the rest. You can have the remainder. We we also turn to God when it's convenient. We we serve him when he can do, or we love him when he can do something for us. When we need something from him, we go to God. Right? When a family member is sick, we go to God. When we're going through a really tough time, we go to God. When we're confused about what's going on in the world, we go to God. But when everything is going well, we place Jesus on the back burner. We put him on the back burner, and we'll go back to him when, when we need something from him again. We give him our second best, and we only go to him when we need something from him. And that's, that's a self-centered faith. See, in both passages today, people praised Jesus as he passed by them. In both these passages, they praised him as he passed by. 
They threw their cloaks down on the road. They let the donkey walk over their cloaks. They shouted Hosanna for him. But see, they praised him for self-centered reasons. They wanted something from him. The first thing that they wanted was, was they loved the miracles that Jesus was doing. They loved him for doing these miracles. The healing the sick, the healing the lame, the paralyzed, the raising the dead. They loved all those things, and they praised him for all those things that he was doing. They said, wow, you are amazing. Surely you're the Son of God. Look at all the amazing things you're doing for us, for me. You know, look at all you've done for us. And so they praised him because he was doing these things. And the second thing that they wanted from him, or the second reason they praised him, was that the Jews at this time, they thought that the Messiah, the Messiah who was coming, uh, the, the chosen one, the Christ, he was going to be a king like the kings of old. They knew he was going to be a king, and, it, and all the world would be under him. Uh, everything they looked at from prophecy from old said that this guy was going to be a king, and he was going to be the ruler. And, and they looked at all their kings of old. They looked at kings like King David. King Solomon, King Saul, they looked at these kings of power who took these other nations and conquered them. They conquered these nations. They thought the Messiah was going to be like one of those kings. So they looked at this this Jesus riding into town triumphantly, and they looked at this guy and they said, yes, this is the one who's going to overthrow the Romans. This is the one who's going to deliver us from Rome, just like, you know, Moses delivered us from Egypt. Jesus is going to deliver us from Rome. He's going to overthrow them. He's going to take us out of their rule and their authority, and he's going to be our king. And they were excited for that because they thought this was the guy. But then a few days later, they saw a weak, beaten, disfigured, abused Jesus who was simply taking it all, wasn't fighting back. He wasn't overthrowing them. He was taking the beatings, and he wasn't even fighting them back. He wasn't threatening them back. The figure before them was not a conquering king. This was no powerful Messiah that they saw anymore. They thought this was just a weak fraud. So they changed their minds. Their hearts were changed. They saw this person before them that could no longer serve their needs or serve things they wanted. And they changed their mind. I read a story this week. Uh, it's, it's a legend, so I don't know if it's really uh, true. Uh, but it's a legend about a village in Spain. And the villagers learned that the king was going to pay a visit. The villagers learned that the king was coming. The king was going to come see their little small village. In a thousand years, no king had ever come to see their village. So people in this village were very excited. And they said, we must throw a big party. We have to have a big celebration. And all the villagers agreed. They all said, yes, we have to. We must do that. But the problem was, was it was a really poor village. They didn't have a lot. There weren't many resources. So someone came up with this great idea. Many of the villagers made their own wines at home. So the idea was that everyone in the village would bring a large cup of their best wine. They would bring their best wine, their, their, their choice wine, the, the fanciest wine they had. They would bring a large cup of it, and they would all pour it into a really big vat at the town square. So they put a big vat at the town square, and everyone would pour in their best wine, their choicest wine. And then when the king comes, they would offer it to him, they would offer the, the wine to the king for a drink. And, and because it was the best of everyone's wine, this would surely be the best wine the king had ever tasted because it was everyone's best combined. So the days before the king's arrival, hundreds and hundreds of people in that village, they lined up to make their offering for the king who was coming. So they all climbed this little stairway up to the top of the vat, and they all poured their large chalice through a little small opening at the very top of the vat. They all poured it in. They all poured in their best. 
And finally, after all the villagers did it, the, the vat was full, right to the very brim. And so a couple days later, the king arrives, and he's escorted to the, to the, uh, to the square, and they give him a nice silver cup, and they say, here's a cup. Um, and they said, please draw some wine. The wine represents the best that the villagers have. This is our best, so please draw some wine. So he places a cup under the spigot, and he, and he turns his handle, and he drinks the wine, but then he realizes it's nothing more than water. He realized it's nothing more than water. You see, every villager thought the same thing. They all said, do you know what? I'm going to withhold my best wine. I'll just put in a little bit of water. Because with so many cups, with hundreds of villagers putting in their wine, the king will never notice one cup of water in there. So I'm going to withhold my best uh, so that I can have it. But the problem was that everyone thought the same thing. And so the king was absolutely dishonored by this town because no one gave him their best. See, a real sacrificial committed faith, it doesn't withhold the best. It doesn't give Jesus what's left over. It doesn't only go to him when you need something from him. A committed faith gives Jesus our best, our first, goes to him all the time. We don't fill our leftover calendar slots with some time for Jesus, but instead the entire day is dedicated to Jesus and we fill in some little bits with other stuff. The entire day is dedicated to him. See, giving him everything, even if you don't have much, even if you don't have anything, giving him everything is the key to a committed faith. A committed faith is all about serving him first and serving yourself second. It doesn't go to him just when he, you have something that he could do for you. It goes to him all the time simply because of who he is. A second part of having a sacrificial or a committed faith is that it's driven by a relationship, not by religious customs. See, I wonder in part if some of the reason that so many people showed up to throw their cloaks down and praise him was simply because everyone else was doing it. Everyone else was, was doing it. Everyone else was doing this religious custom. And so I wonder if in part some people saw all these people doing this and thought, well, this is the local custom or this is the thing that we're supposed to do. Uh, if this is the Messiah, I better go and throw my cloak down and, and wave some palm branches. And so I think maybe some people might have showed up to this parade for Jesus just to do that because everyone else was doing this religious custom. It was the right thing to do. And see, crowd mentality is a real thing. Uh, crowd mentality is a, is, is a real thing. Some likely started doing it in the very beginning with real motives. Some people, maybe the first people or some of the people there, likely had real motives for worshiping Jesus. They were waving their palm branches. They threw their cloaks down. They did it because they genuinely thought this was the Messiah, and they did love him. Uh, but eventually, there comes a point where others started doing it simply because everyone else was doing it, simply because it was the religious custom that we were supposed to do, and everyone was doing it. Crowd mentality is real. Uh, if you remember the last time that a Canadian team was in the Stanley Cup Finals, not won the Cup, it's been a while for us, but was in the Stanley Cup Finals, that was Vancouver, the Vancouver Canucks, and it was in 2011. So the Vancouver Canucks went to the Stanley Cup Finals in 2011, and they played Boston Bruins. And the Boston Bruins, if you remember this, if you remember 2011, you remember that Vancouver lost to Boston in Game 7. The Boston Bruins beat Vancouver in Game 7. And if you remember that, you'll remember the riots that followed. You'll remember the pandemonium that happened in Vancouver. People were burning cars. They were burning police cars. They were looting uh, shops. They were breaking windows. They were committing all kinds of crimes. 
The riots started because a few people were angry that they had lost. But soon after the riots started with a few people, others joined in. Others joined in simply because everyone else was doing it. Everyone was doing it, and, and, you know, I like hockey, so it's obviously the right thing to do. It's the hockey custom to do, is if everyone else is doing it, then I better do it too, and I better riot, right? Some people who didn't even like hockey and hadn't even seen the game started rioting simply because everyone else was doing it. Everyone was doing it, so I better follow through. This can happen in our lives. A committed sacrificial faith is one that is built on a real relationship with Jesus, not that one that is built on everyone else is doing it, so I better join in, or everyone else is doing this religious thing, so I better join in and do better do this, I better wave my palm branches. But a real faith is built on a real relationship with Jesus. It's not built just because your family has always gone to church, and so you carried on that custom. It's not built just because your best friends go to church, and so you like to hang out with your best friends. Uh, not long ago, about a year ago, Pastor Mark and I were in a meeting with someone who was really angry at our church. He was very upset at our church, and Pastor Mark and I were meeting with this fellow. He was, he was angry. And he was angry because, and I'll say, uh, those types of people were allowed to come to our church. And that's, those are his words. He said, those people are allowed to come. Those are the words he used. And I was ready. I was so ready to battle back. I had a litany of verses. I had all these verses showing him how wrong he was for that kind of a thinking, uh, how we're all invited to the table, how Jesus loves all of us. He doesn't love some of us more than others. He died for all of us, and that all of us are, are beloved children of God, and he desires all of us. And I was ready. I had, I had the blood was flowing. I was starting to boil. I was going to bury this guy in a storm of Bible verses. This is what, you know, Bible college and grad school had prepared me for. I was ready to show him how wrong he was. But Mark, who's much wiser than I, he spoke up and he said, well, okay, can I ask you a question then? He said, if those people are here, um, why not go somewhere else where those people aren't? He said, if you have a problem with those people, why not go somewhere else? And I'll never forget what this guy said. He said, because all my friends come here. All my friends come here. See, Mark told him that if his friends were the only thing keeping him here, that maybe he should make new friends elsewhere. He said, if his friends were the only thing keeping you here, then maybe you should join a social club with his friends. See, Mark knew what the right answer should have been. Uh, this, this man's answer should have been something like, I come because I find Jesus here. I come because I connect with the Lord here. I come because this is where I meet Jesus. This is where I get, you know, refreshed, and this is where I get encouraged. This is where I find my brothers and sisters in Christ who we, we support one another and disciple. But no, he said, I come because my friends go here. And see, Don said this a lot when he was here, but church is not a social club. But some churches have become social clubs. Christianity is not a social club. It's not a place we go just to find friends and hang out with friends because that's not what Christianity is about. A real faith, real Christianity, a real, sincere, committed, sacrificial faith is one that is built on a relationship with Jesus. It is one that is built on meeting Jesus, finding Jesus. It's one that says, I go to church on Sunday mornings not because I love our, our worship band or not because uh, the pastor is cool or not because, you know, there's a really cute chick that goes. I go because I meet Jesus there on Sunday mornings. And so I go there to meet him every single Sunday with my brothers and my sisters. I go because I'm inspired by the Holy Spirit in that place. I go because I'm uplifted. I go because I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what a real faith is built on. Not, not one that is built because you enjoy going to Swiss Chalet with your friends on Sunday afternoons. A real faith, a committed faith, 
is one that is built on a real deep relationship with Jesus. And the third part of a real committed faith, a sacrificial faith, is, is it's being able to weather the storm. So if you have a deep faith, if you have a real faith, one that has a deep relationship with Jesus, uh, you'll be able to weather the storm. A deep faith or a real sacrificial faith is one has one that roots that go that go so deep, one that's that's roots go deep and wide, and then those roots are are strong. Those roots are what are keep you strong when things get hard. Uh, see, at the parade on Palm Sunday, everyone was praising and shouting Jesus. They were all shouting Hosanna, Hosanna. At the trial, though, to speak out and even stand up for Jesus, no one was there. It was easy to sing Hosanna and, you know, wave your palm, palm branches and, and shout praises and glory on, on Palm Sunday because everyone was doing it. Everyone's doing it. So I'm going to shout along. I'm going to cry Hosanna. I'm going to praise this guy. But then a few days later at the trial, uh, I'm not going to say anything because no one's saying anything. If I stand up for this guy, that could be life-threatening. That could be real risky. I could die for this. So no one said anything. Look at how afraid Peter was to even admit that he knew Jesus. Peter didn't even, couldn't even admit that he knew Jesus. He denied knowing Jesus three times. And see, lots of us are right there with Jesus when things are great. When things are great and life is going good, a lot of us are right there with Jesus. We're right with him. But when something catastrophic happens, we're out. We're done. We're out of here. We're done with Jesus. We're done this Christianity thing. Because things like that, or we think things like that shouldn't happen if we have faith. Things like that aren't, aren't supposed to happen to us if we're Christians. Faith is supposed to be all roses, no thorns. I didn't sign up for hard times. I only signed up for good times. But that's not what real faith is. Real faith weathers the storm. I've been asked a few times, uh, many times actually, how do I go on believing that God is good? How do I go on believing that God is powerful? How do I go on believing that God loves me when my three-year-old son lost his battle to cancer? How do I believe in a good, powerful, loving God when that happened? How could I believe in a good, powerful, loving God when that happened? And it's a genuine question, and people want to know the answer. But the thing is that while I wavered in that storm, while I, while I was blown about in that storm, while it was painful, and I was angry, and I was broken, I was hurting, my roots were just deep enough. My roots went just deep enough that I was able to weather the storm. Because of those deep roots rooted in Jesus, I was able to withstand the storm. And see, that's what, that's what roots do for you. Uh, roots anchor you. Uh, I live in a house just out front that is surrounded by a lot of trees. There's lots of trees up there. And some of them are like 50, 60 feet tall. They're huge, towering trees. And something you might not know about trees is a little bit about their root system. And, and I'm sure we all know that the roots go out and they collect nutrients and they collect uh, all the metals and all the things that the, the plant needs, all the things that the plant has to take in to grow. The roots collect all of those. It collects the water, all those things, and soaks it up and brings it into the tree. Absolutely, that's one function of the roots, though. The other function of the roots of a tree are to anchor you. See, I've been told and I, I, I've read that the roots of a tree can go out, uh, out as wide in every direction and as deep as the tree is tall. So if you have a 50-foot tree, uh, the roots can go out 50 feet in every direction and even 50 feet deep. When storms come, I love watching these trees in my backyard. Because if I look at these trees when the wind is strong, I watch these trees move 10, 15 feet in the air. 
And I just look at them and I can't believe they're not blowing over. They're going all the way across. They're blowing 20 feet away and they're bending and they're, they're, the trunks are creaking and groaning under this pressure. But because of the deep, deep roots anchored in the soil, when the storm has passed, they are still standing. They are still there standing. They might have taken a beating. Perhaps the trees might have even lost a few branches, but their roots kept them standing through the storm. That's what deep roots do for you in the storm. That's what a deep, committed faith does for you in the storms of life. See, a real, committed, deep faith has ones that the roots go deep, the roots go far and wide in Jesus. Those roots go out in every direction. It's rooted in Jesus so that when the storm hits you, even though you might, you might lose a branch or two, you might stumble, you might really be shaking about, you're not going to get blown over. You're not going to get uprooted because you're rooted in Jesus. That's how I got through my hardest times, being deeply rooted in Jesus. My roots held tight to Him and helped me stay standing until this had all passed. Then after, I can gather myself. Today is Palm Sunday. As we wave branches, and maybe you're waving some branches at home, as you sing songs of praise, as you shout for Hosanna, what's your faith like? Is your faith a deep, committed, sacrificial faith? Or is yours a casual, surface-level faith? Is it a Sunday morning faith? Or is it a 24-7 faith? Do you have a real relationship with Jesus, one that has roots in Him so you weather the storm? Are you Christ-centered or are you self-centered? We're going to move to a time of worship here, and we're going to do something different. Uh, I'm not going to play today. We actually have some songs. Ryan's going to put some videos up, and the videos have lyrics, and so sing along at home. But as we move into the time of worship, take a minute to reflect on where you are in your relationship with Jesus. Do you have one? Do you know Jesus personally? Do you have roots that go deep in Him? If not, if your relationship is not where it needs to be, if it's not as deep or as wide or as real as it should be, now's a great time to ask Jesus to help you out. Now's a great time to ask Jesus and the Holy Spirit to help you go deeper in Him, to help you get a deeper relationship with Him. Now's the time to go from a casual faith to a committed faith, from a self-centered faith to a Christ-centered faith. Now's the time. Now's the time to be rooted in relationship with Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll go into a time of worship. Jesus, we thank you for what you did thousands of years ago. Lord, we look forward to many more days where we're able to tell others about all that you've done for us. Jesus, help us to have a real relationship with you. Lord, help us not be part of a church for a social club, but Father, help us to be the church as the people who are here with a message of love. Lord, give us the ability to have a relationship with you that is not just leftovers, Father, but it's the everyday, it's the always. Lord, help us be rooted in you. When storms come, help us withstand the storms because we're rooted in you. Help us withstand the beatings that we may take in life because we're rooted in you. Father, help us to, to, to so be full, so fully engaged in this relationship with you that, that Jesus, others just see it. Others see that there's something different about us and they're curious. They want to know. Let our very lives, the way that we live, be a witness to you. Let that be our testimony, Father. Lord, we thank you for the many blessings you give us. And even now, in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, you still pour your blessings out on us. And we thank you for those things. In Jesus' name, amen.